Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is, in politics, compromise is a virtue, not a vice. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With these IPI Policy Basics podcast episodes, we're building an audio reference library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy from a limited government, free market standpoint, or for those who just need to get up to speed on a particular issue. Today, I'm solo in the studio, which means I get to indulge one of my personal policy hobby horses, namely that in politics, compromise is a virtue, not a vice. Now, let's back up a second and talk a little bit about some basic civics in our system. There's a fundamental difference. There's a fundamental difference between governing systems, between political systems. And uh, the vast majority of political systems in human history have been systems where somebody ruled over somebody else, whether it was a king or an oligarchy or even in like, even in like ancient Greece and Rome – where you had essentially, you had a Senate, but they were all the wealthy, powerful people, and they basically ruled over the country. And of course, our founders coming fresh off of the tyranny of the King of England decided that what they wanted was not a system where anybody ruled anybody, but to where we governed ourselves. So the founders designed a system that was directed towards self-government rather than being ruled, and this was their chief concern. Now, you can be ruled in other ways besides just having a king. Uh, anytime the rules for society are imposed on people without their input, uh, they're being ruled. So if the rules for society are imposed on you by a judge or a court, that's not self-government. That's being ruled. If the rules for society are imposed on you by an unaccountable regulatory state or administrative state, uh, that's being ruled. That's not self-government. Now, if you read the Federalist Papers, and you should if you haven't, um, what you find is that you'll find um, chapter after chapter in the Federalist Papers where our founders were concerned about what they called factions. They were very concerned about factions. Um, in a system where we are ruled by a king, of course, the, the king has no problem dealing with rebellions and factions and things like that. But how do you deal with rebellions and factions in a system of self-government? Particularly, how do you deal, how do you prevent one faction, one group of people from obtaining enough political power that they can just run roughshod over those who disagree with them? And this was the main concern that the founders had. They didn't want any faction, any group of people to, to be able to gain so much power that they could just run roughshod over the people who disagreed with them. Essentially, if you gained enough political power, you could rule over the people who disagree with you. And so that's one of the reasons why they designed the system the way they designed it. We have three branches of government. The legislative branch makes the laws. The judicial branch interprets the laws. The executive branch enforces the laws. That's one of the reasons why we have two houses of Congress, one elected at the state level and the other elected at individual district levels. And the whole idea of our system is to take power, 
divide it up into lots of little pieces, make them all cooperate with each other, make them come to consensus, slow things down, uh, make it to where one mob, one faction cannot just overrun the system and impose their views on everyone else. Because again, in the founder's view, this would not be self-government. This would be being ruled. So that's why we have separation of powers. It's why we have uh, the Bill of Rights. It's why we have the, the rights that we have. Those are also limits and checks. Uh, your, your neighbors, a majority of your neighbors can't vote to take your religious freedom away. A majority of your neighbors can't vote to take away your property rights or your freedom of speech. A majority of your neighbors can't vote to take your guns away from you. So all of these things are designed to keep one faction of the country from being able to essentially rule over the other faction of the country. But my thesis is that today, too often, we slip back into exactly the mentality of what our founders were concerned about. Despite this system that we have, despite that we still have separation of powers, despite that we still have two houses of Congress, despite that we still have a Bill of Rights, there is always this human instinct to try to gather enough political power that we can run roughshod over those who disagree with us. And my thesis is that today, this is actually what we see in our country. Uh, we see factions that want to essentially conquer and rule over the other, rather than sitting down across the table and trying to work together to solve problems. And I'll just describe to you in detail how this has worked for about the last 20 years in the United States. We'll have an election, and if one party is lucky, they will take control of Congress, and they will also can take control of the White House, and then they will spend two years trying to jam their agenda down the throats of the country, whether that's Democrats with Obamacare, or whether that is uh, the Republicans trying to dramatically increase military spending or whatever. And there's, there's a whole operating principle right now in Washington that works from the assumption that you can only get anything done if you have control of everything for two years, and you better get it done in those two years because you know when the midterm election rolls around, the, the pendulum's going to swing the other direction, and then we're going to have two years when no one could get anything done until the next election comes along, and hopefully one side or the other gains a lot of political power. Now, to me, that sounds an awful lot like what the founders were trying to prevent from happening. This idea that one faction tries to gain enough political power that it can essentially rule over the other faction, that it can run roughshod over the other faction. And I think that I have an explanation for why this happens. And I think the reason is that compromise has become a dirty word. Uh, folks on the left do not want to compromise with folks on the right because they think people on the right are evil. And folks on the right, compromise is a dirty word because they think the left is evil. And if, if you think people who disagree with you are evil, then it seems like a moral problem to sit down across the table with them and compromise with them. So I want to talk a little bit about this, uh, this idea of compromise. Because in many areas of life, compromise is bad. If you think about, for instance, in, in religion or theology, if you compromise your beliefs, if you compromise your theology, if you compromise your religious convictions, that's a bad thing. That's a bad thing within the world of religion and theology. If you think about the world of ethics and morality, compromise is a bad thing, right? Uh, we don't want people compromising their marriages. We don't want people compromising their integrity. We don't want people compromising their ethical convictions. 
the whole idea of morality and ethics and and religious faithfulness is that if things get tough, you're willing to take the hit, but you don't compromise because you have these convictions. So, you know, within the sphere of morality and ethics, compromise is a bad word. Within the sphere of religion and theology, compromise is a bad word. But within the world of politics, compromise is not a bad word. In fact, within the realm of politics, compromise is absolutely necessary. Our founders, in fact, it was Ben Franklin, I believe, who said that compromise is the essence of our democracy. Because another word for compromise is simply negotiation. In business, when one business is negotiating with another, whether it's about the price of goods or services, or whether it's about signing a contract, or whether it's about employment or anything like that, that's negotiation. That's compromise. And in a negotiation, each side tries to get as much of what they want as they can. And if they're able to come up with a consensus, they probably have to give here, they probably have to give there in order to get back. But at the end of the day, they make an agreement, they reach consensus, they sign a contract, and it's a win-win for both parties. No, neither party got exactly what they wanted or everything they wanted, but they were willing to negotiate, they were willing to compromise. And so that's how they get things done. In politics, compromise, negotiation, is the foundation of the system. It's an absolute necessity. It's the only way that self-government works. Otherwise, you have the situation where both fighters retreat to their corners and refuse to come out and engage, and nothing actually gets done. Now, as I record this Policy Basics policy episode in uh, June of 2023, just a few weeks ago, we had yet another one of our debt ceiling confrontations between Republicans and Democrats. The Democrats wanted a straight debt ceiling deal. Uh, with Well, they didn't want a deal. They wanted just a straight debt ceiling extension, and Republicans said, no, we're, we want a deal. We, there's things we're going to ask in exchange for that. And President Biden spent months saying, no deal. I'm not going to negotiate. I'm not going to compromise. I'll only take a straight debt ceiling. Well, what they end up doing? They ended up coming up with a deal. They ended up coming up with a compromise, with a negotiation. Democrats got what they wanted. They got an extension of the debt ceiling, but they had to give some things up. They had to give up work requirements for, uh, for social benefits. They had to give up some spending limitations and some spending caps. They had to give up a, um, a refunding of some of the remaining unspent COVID relief funds. The Democrats had to give something. That was a compromise. That was a successful negotiation and a successful compromise. And both sides came away saying, well, I'm not completely thrilled about this, but, you know, it's okay. And, you know, almost no one's talking about it anymore because we have moved on, because we've, we've solved that problem and we've moved on. Now, there were some Republicans who refused to vote for it, and there were some Democrats who refused to vote for it because they didn't want to compromise. But if there hadn't been compromise, if there hadn't been negotiation, we would not have solved that problem. So the debt ceiling negotiation, the debt ceiling compromise is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. We don't get things done in legislative bodies without compromise. I want to read something from an op-ed that was written by former Senator Phil Graham in the Wall Street Journal in February of 2023. I'm not going to read everything, but it's a really important lesson along the lines of what I'm trying to explain here. 
and that is that we don't get anything done without a willingness to compromise. The system demands compromise. And Phil Graham goes back and tells us some lessons from history, the Reagan Revolution. And Phil Graham says this in the February 22nd, 2023 edition of the Wall Street Journal. The road to adopting the Reagan program and changing America was paved with bitter compromises. If perfection is what you're after, then running for Congress is the wrong decision. I never wrote or voted for any major major legislation that didn't contain something I opposed. If you can't compromise, you cannot legislate or govern. Every part of the Reagan budget, defense buildup and tax cuts contained gut-wrenching defeats and painful compromises. And he gives the example about how the Democrats, Senator John Bro and some other Democrats, offered to vote with the Republicans on the legislation in exchange for the commitment to not try to kill the sugar subsidy program. And Phil Graham says, one of the most rotten and a government festooned with rotten programs. So Phil Graham says this, I trudged down to the White House to relay the Democrats' offer. President Reagan asked me what I thought we should do. I told President Reagan I did not come to Congress to save the sugar program. Reagan assured me that he did not become president to save it either. But then he asked the important question, can we get the win without cutting the deal? I told him I didn't think so. I hated the compromise, but passage of the reconciliation bill with its spending cuts, defense increases, and tax cuts was so important to the future of the country that I advised the president to take the deal and commit to leaving the sugar program alone. President Reagan sighed and said, I guess this is what they call kissing the pig. And Phil Graham says, we kissed a lot of pigs in ending inflation, rebuilding the economy, and winning the Cold War, but it was worth it. So that's Senator Phil Graham's historical lesson on why compromise is necessary. Compromise is a virtue in legislating and getting things done. At the end of Phil Graham's op-ed, he has another anecdote where Representative Ron Paul from Texas, who said he was going to vote against the reconciliation bill because it contained a budget deficit. And Phil Graham says, I begged him to vote with us because his vote might be critical. But Ron Paul said he couldn't. He had made a commitment to never vote for a budget that had a deficit. I tried to explain to him that it was impossible in 1981 to write a budget without a deficit. I have often wondered what Ron Paul would have told his grandchildren had the Reagan program failed. I guess he would have said, yes, America went to hell while I was in Congress, but at least I voted against it. And Phil Graham says, in closing, the test of any legislation is whether the country is better off with the change than it would have been without it. So this is Phil Graham's very recent explanation and historical lesson of exactly what I'm trying to talk about. Compromise is not a dirty word in legislating. Compromise is a necessity. It's an absolute necessity. And one of the great dysfunctions in Congress right now is that no one's willing to compromise. And so nothing gets done. So let's talk about a couple of things that are not getting done. We have an enormous immigration crisis at the border, and no one's doing anything about it. There are deals to be made. There are deals to be made that would involve border security enhancements, something Republicans want, walls where they're needed automation and technology where it makes more sense, 
drones and physical barriers where it makes sense in exchange for something Democrats want, like maybe citizenship for the dreamers or something like that. There are deals out there that are waiting to be made that would solve problems and allow us to move on. But if either a Republican or a Democrat says that they're willing to talk to the other side about compromise, the voters would come after them with their AR-15s. The voters won't let them compromise. And so that's why we have dysfunction in Congress. And why won't voters let them compromise? Because voters think compromise is a bad word. I regularly hear people saying, I want someone to go up to Washington and fight for me. I think there's a better way to put it. I want someone to go to Washington who has strong conservative free market principles and convictions to go up there and negotiate and solve problems. And to do that is going to require compromise. It's going to require, as Phil Graham said, Republicans never would have whipped inflation. They never would have grown the economy and they never would have won the Cold War without compromise. So what I would ask podcast listeners to consider is that compromise in some spheres, in the religious sphere, in the ethics sphere, is a bad word. But in the realm of legislating, compromise is not only, not only necessary, but as Franklin said, the essence of our democracy. Well, you can find out more about civics and our federal design at our website at ipi.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. 